Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Welcome to another episode of On The Edge with Andrew Gold and... Today, we've got the first of seven interviews that I did at the Battle of Ideas. Go check them out. They were so nice, nice enough to give me a room just to interview people who were speaking at the event. So I got some really big names and some big people in the intellectual sphere, which is something that I've wanted to go back to. I started the podcast looking into that stuff and I've wanted to do that for a while. I told you all I would be doing it and this is this is the moment. It's all happening. Um, and obviously, I'll still be doing all the stuff on cults and pop culture but sprinkling in some of these kinds of things. And today's episode was short. It's with Dr. Remy Adekoya. And it's short because somebody else who was supposed to come, we got a whole mix-up with different times and things. And Remy was then able to come in for half an hour before I did my next interview. So it's just a half an hour episode today. But he's a fascinating guy. And I'd actually only met him the night before at this party or reception for Battle of Ideas. And we got talking and I just couldn't believe how insightful this guy was. So I hope you guys find it interesting. He is Dr. Remy Adekoya, a lecturer, professor of politics and international relations at the University of York, which is a prestigious university in the UK. He's initially from Nigeria and his main research interests include the discursive strategies used to construct national and subnational identities by political actors. Right, all that stuff sounds very university-ish, but before joining academia, he was a political journalist and has written on national and international affairs for The Guardian, Sunday Times, Washington Post, Politico, Spectator, Unheard, and many others. And he's given analysis on CNN, BBC, Sky News, and all sorts of big uh, TV channels. And he has written uh, an absolutely fascinating book. Well, he's written a few, actually. But the most recent one is It's Not About Whiteness, It's About Wealth. So he, as a person from Nigeria, a person who is black himself, he does not believe that a lot of the inequality is about race. He thinks it's really about wealth. And of course, those things overlap. And that's what he's going to discuss. But this being a time where everybody's talking about Israel, I asked him for the first half of this about Israel. And he just gave the most fascinating answers. So I think you guys will find this really interesting. It's a really subtle and nuanced look uh, from a fantastic speaker. Really, really good. Do go and get his book. It's not about whiteness. It's about wealth. Look him up on Twitter and all those things. Big episodes are coming up. We've got Graham Linehan, the world's most cancelled man, who who launched a campaign against uh, against some of the trans ideology that he finds offensive and lost pretty much everything from that. And Francis Foster, one half of the trigonometry duo, is coming on, as well as Nina Power, who talks about uh, men and incels and all sorts of interesting things, and a few other people who I interviewed at the Battle of Ideas. So it's a really interesting few weeks coming up. Oh, and also one with a paedophile hunter called Courtney Elizabeth, who is just fascinating. That wasn't at the Battle of Ideas. That was just one of my normal episodes, but that's next. And wow, absolutely mind-blowing. So do not miss that one. But now you're on the edge of Israel and race and 
Nuance with Dr. Remy Adekoya. Right, you work in academia. Outside, we've just had loads of protests uh, in favour of Palestine, which, which I think is fair enough. You know, that can happen. There have also been some very strange reactions in academia. So can you take me through what you've noticed? So um, uh, reactions that caused a lot of outrage were, for instance, there was a letter from the Harvard students essentially declaring um, support for Hamas and what led to the um, uh, Hamas attacks on October the 7th. Uh, there was also a tweet um, uh, from the Chicago chapter of um, uh, BLM, also there, you know, with the paraglider, I think was a sort of iconic um, a symbol that was put, you know, on that tweet. And generally speaking, you know, what this speak to and what some on the center left have complained about is that adoption among some on the left of the oppressed versus oppressor framework, which essentially divides the world into two kinds of groups. You have the oppressed groups and you have the oppressor groups. And the oppressor groups are always bad. They're always wrong. And oppressed groups are always seen as being on the good side. And a lot of this comes from, you know, intellectual traditions, some intellectual traditions uh, on the left, there's whole Polo Fres, pedagogy of the oppressed, but it's generally a very simplistic division of the world into that oppressed versus oppressor, good versus bad narrative, which of course, you know, the Israel-Palestine issue is way more complex than that. So this is interesting, and I, I want to mention something called intersectionality, but without getting, because I know for a lot of people, it's the first time they hear that, and we have to explain in simple words, but the... Can you explain to me what the initial idea behind intersectionality was? Because because my understanding is that is what you're saying, like things are very complicated and how it's been subverted. Actually, I think this is less intersectional than um, many on the left would like to portray it, or those people I'm talking about. So intersectionality, the essential idea is that we all have various characteristics, such as our skin color, um, our gender, and we can be discriminated on based on any of these characteristics. And so everyone has a sort of, you know, matrix. So if you're black and you're gay and you're poor, then you face a sort of triple discrimination, whereby if you're black heterosexual, you just face discrimination on, on the racial angle. However, at heart, one thing I think um, uh, some of these reactions revealed is that for many people on the left, the fundamental oppressed oppressor framework actually goes along ethno-racial lines. Because when people were attacked in Israel on October the 7th, those people who voiced support for Hamas didn't seem too concerned that there were women in Israel who were attacked, who were raped and killed. Within the intersectional framework, women are also oppressed by, as a, you know, by the patriarchal system as of being women, and so should have expected some solidarity from the intersectional left. But there was no solidarity because they were Jewish women. Because what really mattered was that they were Jewish women. Also, the um, BLM chapter who voiced them, um, uh, you know, support then for Hamas didn't ask whether some of the people who were killed in Israel might have been gay or might have been disabled or any of these other characteristics that technically the intersectional left should be worried about. What really mattered was that they were Jewish. And so I think, you know, in such situations of conflict, actually, when emotions are high and everything is sort of stripped back, you actually see that fundamentally often at heart, this is really about ethno-racial groups. And which groups are seen as the oppressor groups, which is essentially white people and Jews. And pretty much all other groups are seen as oppressed groups. If I'm going to steal man, you know, could give the best possible argument for the other, for that side, would they maybe say it's not that they were Jewish, it's that they were Israeli and Israel is oppressing Palestine? 
I don't see how that can in any way justify, you know, the killings of um, uh, civilians. I mean, they were civilians at the end of the day. And under any kind of moral framework, which any civilized person would agree would agree to, you're not supposed to kill um, a civilian. So there's no justification for that, you know. And of course, I would understand those who would complain that, for instance, Israelis are killing Palestinian civilians. And that should be exactly, that's, you know, that's the same argument. And I would also argue that that's also wrong just the way killing Israeli civilians by Hamas was wrong. So the question is for there not to be a sort of double double standards, which we adopt based on whether it's, you know, someone from the oppressed group or from the oppressor group. And then we've got this issue of why the Jews are not part of the oppressed group, because we know throughout history, Jews have been in all sorts of pogroms and the Holocaust and countless things have happened to Jewish people. What's going on there? What's going on there is these elements of the left I'm speaking about who thinking this way, it's obviously not all the members of the left, um, focus only on the now. Yeah. So it doesn't matter that, you know, 70, 80 years ago, there was the Holocaust and millions of Jews were killed. What matters to them is who has power now, who is seen as powerful today. And seen as powerful today, broadly speaking, the white West, or some would even extend it to, you know, whiteness, generally white people, and Jewish people, since Israel is a successful state, it is a wealthy state, advanced technologically with a strong military, it's essentially seen as a powerful state. And so it's part of the, you know, oppressor group. And of course, there's a whole context of what's going on within the Middle East and, you know, occupation, Gaza, West Bank, etc. Gaza especially, yeah. Yeah, it's so complicated, isn't it? Because I think even back then, the, the, this is what's happening today. There are echoes of what was happening with the Nazis. Uh, who still saw the Jews as the oppressors, the Jews, and I think in general, try to amass as much money and as much uh, security as possible uh -huh. to ward against these kinds of things, but it didn't help because it can just take all that stuff away. No, of course, because, you know, nobody predicted on October 7th, just like nobody predicted a 9-11. So, of course, that, uh, that, that can always happen. Mm -hmm. And, it, well, I mean, it, there's a lot of talk about, I mean, this is getting into Israeli politics, but yeah. because the, the country itself was so divided at that time, I guess that, I mean, is that is that something that, terrorist groups tend to go for when, when a country is so divided they were sort of caught asleep at the wheel Israel possibly you know we don't know I wasn't in in, in, in the planning sort of group um, and there with them so I, I'm not really sure um, uh, they probably would have struck you know anyway uh, that could have helped the fact that they could have thought but I, I I don't think even at least from what the Hamas leader said afterwards they didn't even think the attack would be so effective that's what they said later on that we hadn't thought it would quote-unquote you know go so well something along those lines so they had imagined that they would kill people probably that they hadn't imagined they'd be able to kill that many people and at the beginning they were of course um, celebrating it and I remember the words I think used by all of the Hamas leaders was that we didn't know we would make so many gains mm. you know uh, now, of course, they've, you know, um, changed tune and now are, you know, playing um, uh, the victim, so to speak, um, Hamas, I mean. Um, so, yeah, so that's changed now. I think it was... It and was, then, sorry, there's, cool. there, there's a whole sort of wider geopolitical sort of um, angle there. The Saudis were about to normalize relations with Israel, mm. which, of course, is against the interests of Iran in the region, because that would change the sort of power dynamics within the Middle East. And so, and that's why I think some people are rightly within the American um, sort of intelligence community drawing a link that, you know, Iran probably had something to do with that and helped with some planning or financing or something. Because indeed, it is in Iran's interest that this is playing out the way it's playing out.
This is this is the thing. There's a Sunni versus Shia aspect. Yes, and I or never remember which ones which with Saudis and Iran. Do you? Uh, Saudis are Sunnis and Iranians. That's America. Shia this Muslims. Is, this is a fierce rivalry. It is. My understanding, unless I've just misread something, is that something like ninety-seven percent of Muslims in the region who have been killed in wars and battles and things over the last few decades uh, have come from other Muslim wars. Only a few percent have come from the Israeli state. Why then do we get such a resistance, particularly on the left, such a anti-Israel thing going on uh, in the streets? And do you think that a lot of the students, I suppose, really understand what they're saying when they chant, for example, from the river to the sea? I would assume they don't really understand what they're saying. Um, uh, why is there such um, a feeling, sort of an anti-Israel feeling? A, because, again, we go back to that, it is seen as an oppressor group. It's a powerful group, rich group occupying a, a territory and so it is the oppressor group and so generally speaking the instincts and sometimes this can come from noble places but like you say a lack of understanding can lead to um, nonsensical um, views also uh, there's the idea that you know you should as a self-respecting um, uh, leftist or as a good leftist side with the underdog mm. and so in this case in the Pal palestinians are seen as the underdog because they're the weaker party, you know, they don't have the level of technological sophistication the Israeli army has and the weaponry, etc., etc. And so very often I think it is sort of almost gut reaction, you know, ah, okay, you know, so who's the oppressor here? Who's the oppressed? Ah, okay, the Israelis are the oppressors. The Palestinians are the oppressed. You know, who's the stronger side? Who's the weaker side? The Israelis are the stronger side. The Palestinians are the weaker side. And a lot of people, I think, you know, go with that um, sort of, you know, gut reaction. Do you think there's an element of the sort of racism of lower expectations in some cases? Because, of course, I, I understand how they can see Israel as the power in that sense. But then you look at Israel on the map, it's the size of Wales or New Jersey or something. It's this tiny little... And you see the Muslim country. It's the one Jewish country where Jews can go if they're being persecuted. We could, I, I think of that. My family, it's, if it got hot here, we could flee there and hopefully be safe with the Iron Dome and all those kinds of things. Uh, and then you see it surrounded by, what is it, 40, 50 Muslim countries. Mm -hmm. Some of them are very, very wealthy. Qatar, mm -hmm. uh, Saudi Arabia, these yeah. are extremely wealthy countries. So is this part of the lower expectations of the left when they think of Arabic countries? That's a, that, that, that's a good point. I think to a certain extent, there is something in that. Uh, generally speaking, I think um, the Western world, let's call it, Western civilization, broadly speaking, um, to which sort of, Jewish civilization is attached to are held to higher standards, I'd say, than most other regions, civilizations, places. There's definitely a double standard like that. So when human rights abuses, for instance, are committed in Middle Eastern countries, or it could be in Asian countries, or it could be in African countries, there will be some outcry, you know, from, let's say, Amnesty International and organizations like that, but it doesn't really go mainstream. Because there is that sort of, you know, lower, they're held to a lower moral standard. And that is definitely, you know, the bigotry of low expectations. Like, oh, well, you know, that's how things happen there. But if those same, you know, if an identical um, uh, level of human rights abuse was committed in, say, a Britain or a France or a US, there'd be much more outcry that would go mainstream because those countries are held to higher standards. And so there's definitely, um, there's definitely that. And Israel, like I say, is held to a, a higher standard than probably Qatar might be or UAE.
Hey, it's Andrew. If you're enjoying Heretics, there's another podcast I want to recommend to you, especially if climate change, global conflicts and an upcoming election are making you feel like we're on the brink of disaster. What Could Go Right is hosted by Progress Network founder Zachary Carabell and executive director Emma Varvalukas. On What Could Go Right, the hosts sit down with expert guests to discuss the world's most pressing issues without resorting to pessimism or despair that we hear so often. Instead, they look back at how far society has come and look forward at what it will take to achieve an even brighter future. Is progress on the way? They may not have all the answers, but on what could go right, they're asking the key questions. Tune in to hear interviews with upcoming guests like writer Coleman Hughes, CNN host Fareed Zakaria, and economist Alison Schrager. If you're looking for a weekly dose of optimistic ideas from smart people, join them every Wednesday on What Could Go Right, available wherever you get your podcasts. A few decades ago, private citizens used to be largely that, private. What's changed? The internet. Think about everything you've browsed, searched for, watched or tweeted. Now imagine all of that data being crawled through, collected and aggregated by third parties into a permanent public record. Your record. Having your private life exposed for others to see was once something only celebrities worried about. But in an era where everyone is online, everyone is a public figure. To keep my data private when I go online, I turn to ExpressVPN. Did you know there are hundreds of data brokers out there whose sole business is to buy and sell your data? The worst part is they don't have to tell you who they're selling it to or get your consent. One of these data points is your IP address. Data harvesters use your IP to uniquely identify you and your location. But with ExpressVPN, my connection gets rerouted through an encrypted server and my IP address is masked. Every time I turn ExpressVPN on, I'm given a random IP address shared by other ExpressVPN customers. That makes it more difficult for third parties to identify me and harvest my data. And the best part is how easy ExpressVPN is to use. No matter what device you're on, phone, laptop or smart TV, all you have to do is tap one button to get protected. So if, like me, you believe that your data is your business, secure yourself with the number one rated VPN on the market. Visit expressvpn.com heretics and get three extra months for free. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash heretics. Go to expressvpn dot com slash heretics to learn more. Mm. It really frustrates me. And it also frustrates me not just how some of the left and I hold liberal. I mean, we, we all do this while we're here at the Battle of Ideas, these liberal opinions and, and about plurality of opinion, these kinds of things. But it does feel like before even asking, you know what Greta Thunberg's opinion on Israel is going to be, yes. that she's pro-Palestine, mm. and she poses for these photos with this whole climate thing, and yeah. as if they're somehow related, and then you get LGBT for Palestine. Um, and and all of those things are so much more complicated than I think their slogans like to suggest. The, the climate thing, for example, like you're saying, I guess, so they want to be with the underdog. I get that. The underdog is the earth. In that sense, it's mm -hmm. going to die or whatever. But surely the underdog is the family trying to feed their family, you know, try the people trying to feed their families. And if we too quickly go away, change the climate and everything, those people aren't going to be able to make a living. And they're the underdog in that sense. Like there's underdogs on both sides. Is this something that needs to be taught better maybe to students? You know, the problem, of course, that you have here in the Western world with students who would generally have grown up in, in middle class homes, even here with the Western world, is simply a complete lack of imagination as to how many people in many countries in the world live. 
the utter poverty that exists in many places. So for instance, in Africa, where I grew up in Nigeria, um, 500 million people in Africa live on less than $2 a day. Mm. That's more people than the population of the entire European Union, which is roughly 440 million since the UK left. And then there's another couple hundred million people who live on maybe four or five dollars a day. Okay. Now, people here find this even difficult to imagine. You know, they see the pictures, of course, you know, and they see the, you know, Oxfam charity when they're raising charity for, you know, kids who may be hungry in places. They see all that, but it's still abstract. It's still abstract. And this is why when we get to sort of climate change discussions, and, and I have this when, when teaching at university, I always try to show them the sort of, you know, opinions, voices of Africans on the ground, of African governments on the ground, who say, yes, we know this climate change is happening. It's actually affecting our countries, perhaps sometimes even more than your countries. But at the end of the day, we need economic development because our people need jobs. Our people need money to be able to survive. And unless you, the rich West, telling us that we should adopt these um, policies can provide this or provide us some kind of alternatives or alternative sources of energy, we are going to be forced to use the natural resources which we do have, which do tend to be fossil fuels or natural gas, etc. So for, you know, for the African government on the, uh, on the ground, it's like, you know, what would you have us do? I suppose they could say, okay, maybe in developing countries they can continue to use them, but there's no excuse for Britain and the States, for example. Yes, and uh, and this would be, let's say, fair from the perspective of, let's say, someone like me who's you know um, uh, identifies with 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 an African country. But uh, on the other hand, you know, sort of the climate, the atmosphere there, it's indivisible. So China, for instance, is responsible for I think a third of all CO two emissions. So if the UK, because China argues that it's still a developing country, even though right now it's a wealthy country. Says, you know, we are still developing, just as you know, India argues. And so the thing is, if the UK says, okay, you know, China, you can emit CO2, that's still going into the climate. You know, there's no, so you can't compartmentalize it like that mm. in this sense. So even if they were to say, so Africa as a whole continent is only responsible for 4% of global CO2 emissions, only 4%, the entire continent of Africa. So, but even, you know, to make that argument that, okay, fine, you know, you can continue to emit, you know, we won't, you know, at the end of the day, you know, the emissions are still going into the atmosphere. So I would imagine the pathway forward would be technologies for, you know, renewables that would be able to sustain other economies, drive new growth, etc. If we really want to solve the problem, the general problem of the climate change, while at the same time enabling countries that do need to develop and need it badly, to develop. And there's still, I mean, not compared to what you've just described in Nigeria, but there's still poverty in the UK and the US, or at least some form of poverty compared to what I imagine Greta's had to go through. It just frustrates me. I, I can imagine her, you know, if you sat down and explained that to her and she's now been going, giving lectures to Barack Obama and all these people and they have to sit and listen to her and she says, you have ruined my childhood. Yeah. Right, like like the tone deafness. Mm -hmm. I don't know. There's another aspect of this tone deafness that you've written about in your book. Um, it's not about whiteness, it's about wealth. So tell me a bit about what's going on there. So what's going on there is I try to look at why there was such a global reaction, strong global reaction, strong black global reaction to what happened in 2020 with George Floyd's killing and the BLM you know, protests that erupted after that. Now, it was somewhat to be expected, perhaps not on the scale, but generally speaking, to be expected that there'd be protests in the US, definitely, among, you know, BLM there. Somewhat to be expected that there'd be protests here in Britain. 
even among, you know, black communities in France, etc. But what really struck me was how, you know, African Twitter erupted, you know. Ah. So Kenyans, Nigerians, so people who live in an African country may have never met a white police officer in their lives, definitely don't live under the jurisdiction of a white American police officer. So they don't have a direct, there's no direct threat to them of that. But there was that sort of shared outrage in what was going on. And what I sort of identified there, the, the key theme that sort of unites the Kenyan, the Nigerian, the African-American, and the Black Britain is that shared sense of a global disregard and disrespect for blackness and for black people generally. And, you know, and this is corroborated by various surveys, you know, UN surveys would show that, you know, black people tend to be discriminated pretty much everywhere outside Africa, in China, in India, etc. But there's an Indian, and my writer, Arundhati Roy, quite well known, who said that actually Indian racism towards black people is worse than white Western racism towards black people. The caste system. No, she, she was actually talking specifically about racism towards black people, not even the Indian caste system that exists in India there. She was talking about Indian attitudes towards people of African descent specifically. I see. And she was saying that it's actually amongst, you know, she, she's an Indian, so she was talking about, you know, from what she hears, from what people say, that actually the attitudes can be more contemptuous towards black people than even among white Western attitudes. So this is, uh, and you know, there's still, there, there's black African slaves being sold in Libya today. Right. Okay. So generally speaking, that uh, shared sense of a global disregard for blackness is generally valid. Yeah. That is going on. And so people, um, a lot of people, you know, in Africa believe that, you know, there is still a racial order in place. It's implicit. It's not like it was during the days of slavery or colonialism, but it's still there somewhere. And if you ask people will identify that racial order, they say it's generally white people at the top. In Africa, they'd focus on white people, not on Jewish people. That is generally white people at the top, black people at the bottom, and everyone else somewhere in between. And so I try to say, okay, fine. I do agree to some extent that that kind of implicit racial order still functions in some greater or lesser sort of intensity. But my question is, why does it function? Generally speaking, there seems to be a moral consensus, including among white people, that racial hierarchies are immoral, there shouldn't be a racial order in place. Lots of moral arguments have been delivered against this, you know. Yet, this still continues. There is still something like that. There's still power differentials. What's going on? So someone, the anti-racist and the left especially say, what's going on is this is white racism. It's driven by the ideology of white supremacy. And my argument is, I don't really think so. I don't really think this order is in place simply because white people will it to be in place. I think it's in place because there are material structures in place, material foundations that generally give white people in the sense of people from white majority nations, especially from white Western nations, more power, more agency, more status in the world than we have as black people. And that really boils down to wealth and it boils down to collective wealth. Mm. And I would say our weaker negotiating position vis-a-vis -vis the rest of the world boils down to our lack of collective wealth. Because it's not about individuals here or there, you know, having a couple of black millionaires here or there. It's about black majority nations. 90% of the black people in this world live in Africa. Just 3% of the black people in this world live in America and Britain combined. So even though these, issues, these countries are focused on in the race debate, the race debate and the issue of racial equality is not going to be resolved here in Britain or even in America. It's going to be resolved by what happens in Africa. And if we do want to have any kind of meaningful racial equality, we need to have rich African nations. 
And what I try to show in the book is how collective wealth plays a role in enabling some members of some groups to have more power and agency in the world than others. And because it so happens that there's a few dozen wealthy white majority countries, that then maps onto the racial order. Mm -hmm. Okay? So, for example, Britain has a larger GDP than all of Africa. Yeah? Britain, one country, 68 million people, has a larger GDP than Africa, 1.4 billion people. Wow. Even worse, if you add the GDP of all the 60-something-plus black-majority countries in the world, that's all the countries in Africa plus the countries in the Caribbean, their total GDP is less than Germany's $4 trillion GDP. Wow. So a single European state has a larger GDP than all the black nations in the world put together. So that's the world we live in. And then I now try to show how this plays out in everyday life. So why it is that global knowledge production is essentially dominated by Western universities. A lot of this has to do with the resources which they have. Oxford University in 2022 had a budget of £2 billion. That budget was larger than the education budget of Nigeria, the largest black nation on earth. So one single university here has a larger budget than the education budget of the largest black nation on earth. So it's no surprise that knowledge production is still concentrated here in the West, as a lot of people complain about, but a lot of it comes back to those resources. And then I discuss other spheres in the book, you know, technology, money also plays an aspect in that, um, international influence, who wields international influence, who has hard power, why do countries have hard power? You know, weapons cost money. Mm. When develop nuclear weapons, they cost a lot of money. To maintain an army costs money. And if you look at the list of the strongest countries in the world militarily, they spend a lot of money on that. You know, and that is money which very often African countries simply don't have. That's why we don't have military powers. Why is it important for you that people realize that it's not just about race, it's also about wealth? It's important for me for us to know what we need to focus on to improve our negotiating position vis-a-vis -vis the rest of the world. Mm. Because what the anti-racist left is focusing on is moral arguments. And I'm sick and tired of us only having moral arguments. Because as a group, if you want to be respected you need to have power arguments also. Financial arguments. Financial arguments. That the power arguments essentially stem from your finances, from what you have, from what you can offer. Whether it's hard power or even whether it's soft power. The countries that tend to be at the top of the soft power rankings tend to be the wealthiest countries in the world also. You'll find, I think the 20, I quoted in the book, the 2022 soft power rankings. I think the US was first. Um, I think Britain was second or third. Um, China, essentially the top five countries in soft power rankings were the five biggest economies in the world. And these are also the countries that are often most positively perceived. This is another thing I argue about. A lot, one thing black people complain about a lot, often correctly, are negative stereotypes about black people. And I also look at, okay, what kind of groups tend to have positive stereotypes associated with them? Because there are such groups. Like the Japanese, for instance, we constantly hear how hardworking they are, you know, disciplined or well-organized, etc. We hear that also about the Germans. They are disciplined, they are organized, etc., etc. These groups that are stereotyped positively tend to be the most economically successful groups. Scandinavian countries also. Except the that, Jews. <laughs> well, it, I, I wrote about, I wrote about um, the Jewish aspect. So the, Jew, the kind of prejudice that Jews actually experience is what I would describe as an envious prejudice. Mm. So it's actually the prejudice of, oh, you know, why do they have so much, et cetera, et cetera. But Jewish competence is actually acknowledged. 
Right. It's actually acknowledged. And even, in fact, it was exaggerated and caricatured even by the Nazis. So what were the arguments they used to make? These guys are so clever, they're essentially <laughs> running the world. Yeah. But it's an acknowledgement of competence. It's like, these guys are so clever, they're essentially running the world. However, groups that are economically unsuccessful are never stereotyped as so clever. Okay. They're generally stereotyped as lazy, you know, disorganized. They haven't got their act together, et cetera, et cetera. You yeah, see? yeah. And so if you want to actually be positively stereotyped, because people will stereotype, unfortunately, I wish people wouldn't. I wish we'd just, you know, treat people, but people do, you know, people think in mental it's shortcuts. It's, it's human. human, you yeah. know. And if you want to be positively stereotyped, you have to be economically successful. That's when you'll have all these sometimes even myths around you. Because I'm sure there's a, a few lazy Japanese people. The Japanese one's interesting because I think of them as so conscien conscientious and mild. And But yes. you look at the history and they're just as brutal as anyone else, any other country in the world. Some of the things that they got up to. And it's hard to sort of put that together with today's image of Japanese people. Of course. It's just humans, isn't it? Of course, it's humans, yeah. And also to your point about about the maybe the financial uh impact we'd like to have on minorities and communities that are not doing as well this some my, my former guest coleman hughes he had this point when he was talking on ted or ted talk and everyone was really going in on him and, well, and it was it was a weird thing where a lot of white people are having a go at him because mm -hmm. he's not saying the things they want him to say about mm -hmm. being a minority and being a victim and so on and they said look you know black communities are often poorer and they grow up and they have difficult chances so we need to help them with affirmative action and things like that and he said i don't want to be given a job that i don't deserve I want to start by making that black community wealthier. And I don't know how that, I mean, obviously that's very complex to do. Of course. But I, but, but rather than start, because that's going to foster resentment from people who don't get the jobs and things like that. Yeah. Where can people get your book? Um, Amazon. Yeah. For one, definitely. That's probably the quickest, <laughs> MA, the quickest MA way, yeah. Thank you, Dr. Remy Adekoya, people. Please do think about going and getting his book. It's not about whiteness, it's about wealth, a really nuanced look. He also wrote What It Means to Be Mixed Race uh, in Biracial Britain, which was uh, looks very interesting as well. And what a great speaker he is. Do go follow him on Twitter. Say hello, say you enjoyed this episode. Please tell him you've listened to it or, or whatever. Maybe he'll like me more. And... Uh, put this podcast out into the into the world uh, tell people about it share it around it helps it to grow it's the only way to really grow an audio podcast is to encourage you guys to share it all about as i said before loads of big episodes are coming up graham linehan nina power francis foster peter bogoshan courtney elizabeth the pedophile hunter um uh, one with kinsey schofield about Meghan markle yep still doing those ones uh james essis uh, is cancelled for something all these things john atax back on uh, oh it just goes on and on and it's going to be a fascinating time i hope you stick with it and stick with the podcast